Can you guess the number one thing I get questions about? Number one thing I get questions about, it's not theology, it's not scripture, it's not even the state of the world, although those all show up in my inbox and it is a joy to respond to every one of those, but none of those are number one. The number one questions I get are about leadership. Isn't that wild? When God first pushed me into this way of serving Him, I thought I would mainly answer Scripture or theology questions. But no, the top issues people want to discuss concern leadership, particularly, uh, particularly the interplay of authority and conflict. That's what I get the most questions about, authority and conflict. The questions tend to fall into one of these three big categories. Take a look. Uh, category one is, I'm the boss, so how should I manage blank situation? Category two, there's conflict, or I, I can feel it in the offing. Um, how can I reduce any negatives? I want to handle the conflict well. How can I reduce negatives? And number three, I work for blank kind of boss. How should one handle that? Now, since I wanted to teach Scripture and not business, I just refuse to answer those questions. Uh, instead, what I do is I, um, I hit people over the head with a bunch of heavy uh, Bible passages. I'm kidding. I don't really do that. Uh, actually, the Bible teaches us all about conflict and authority. Frankly, Scripture answers every single one of these questions directly, powerfully, and brilliantly. Uh, the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, he wrote a great number of Proverbs that perfectly answer all of our struggles about authority and conflict situations. Now, hundreds of years after Solomon, his successor, King Hezekiah, collected all those Proverbs into one place. They're, they're part of Hezekiah's amalgamation of Solomonic Proverbs. Um, it's, in, it's in the book we call Proverbs. The Hebrews called it the fourth book of Proverbs. We call it chapters 25 to 29. Um, in Proverbs 25 through 29, there are 10 big themes, 10 big themes that are covered there. And guess what one of the big themes is? It, it, it's in leadership issues about authority and conflict questions that plague us in everyday life. Um, in your notes, you'll see that Solomon knew long ago. He knew long ago that we would have three basic life questions. This is so cool. The text in 25 through 29 falls neatly into our three categories. When you're the boss, when there's conflict, and when you're the one under authority. So let's start by examining what God says when you are the one who has power or authority. Please open your Bible, and let's get the perfect answers to our painful queries on leadership. Go to Proverbs 25, and let's read verse 2. Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate a matter. In one word, Proverbs here calls us to learn. Always learn. In His glory, God is inscrutable, right? We cannot fathom the depth and richness of God any more than a paramecium can grasp calculus. Um, in 1867, the Scottish free kirk pastor Walter Charmler Smith captured this beautifully. He wrote a poem based on the scripture we just read. It became a great hymn. Here's his poem, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. In light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All laud we would render, laud's Scottish for praise. Uh, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. God is inscrutable in light. But that doesn't mean he hasn't given us the joy of investigating and learning. Look, look at the text. It is a glory for leaders to investigate. God has revealed himself to us, reaching past our paramecial limitations to show us natural and scriptural revelation. He has put eternity in our hearts, a longing for knowledge that is the glory of his people. Basically, Solomon's saying 
that if you want to lead, you better learn. Always, always learn. Henry Morris provides a sparkling summary. It's in our notes. Um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see a great quote from Dr. Morris. The first of the Proverbs copied by Hezekiah's men is particularly fascinating, 25-2. In the dominion mandate, God had commissioned Adam and his descendants to subdue the earth, Genesis 1:28. This command authorizes every honorable human occupation, especially that of research to understand the systems and processes of nature so they can be organized and utilized for God's glory and man's good. These systems and processes are almost innumerable and are all incredibly complex in their structure and working. When studied in depth, they all should cause their researchers to give glory to God who has designed and made them. There is then great joy in such discoveries, and great scientists such as Kepler, Newton, and Maxwell have all recognized their scientific revelations were merely, and this is a quote from Sir Isaac Newton, thinking God's thoughts after him, and they gave him their glory. We have the power to learn, always learn. When we do so, it is to our glory, and it gives us opportunity to glorify God. All God's people said? All right, now read the next verse, verse 3. As the heaven is high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings cannot be investigated. What's going on here? Kind of a hard verse to figure out. Sid Buzzell, I think, explains really nicely. Look what Sid says. God hides some of his knowledge from kings, and kings hide some of their knowledge from their subjects. Rulers, responsible for knowing what is going on and for investigating issues fully, need not reveal everything they know. Close quote, circumspection. Solomon is thus saying that when you have authority or power, don't reveal all you know. This has been a huge area of immaturity in my life. I sometimes feel compelled to say everything on my mind, which makes me, by definition, a poor leader. The authority is supposed to be circumspect. That's what's meant by cannot be investigated. Anybody else here struggle with keeping your mouth shut? Okay. Proverbs 17.28 takes a more general view. 17.28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Chapter 25 is concerned with wise people who surrender their authority because they won't be circumspect. Proverbs 17 deals with fools who've mastered silence and thus they appear wiser. You may be more familiar, by the way, with the uh, version of that proverb penned by a wit named Maurice Switzer. Uh, he wrote, it's better to remain silent at the risk of being thought a fool than to talk and remove all doubt of it. Uh, by the way, versions of that have been attributed to Mark Twain and to Abraham Lincoln, but neither of them said it. Maurice did. Circumspection is wise, but it seems difficult. I think it's especially difficult for young people who, of course, know everything, and, uh, and I think it's hard for older people who have legitimately built up wisdom from experience. But no matter our situation, if we want to keep and use authority, we must learn to control our tongues. Not too long ago, a couple in their 30s, a couple in their early 30s met with me. Um, they asked me to pray with them about the, their pregnancy journey that they wanted to start. I was honored, said I'd be glad to pray with them, but I... I had to ask why they weren't meeting with their parents instead. You see, I know both the families, none of whom go to church here, but I know both these families, and they are wise, godly, loving parents. The husband said, oh, we would meet with them, but they can't keep quiet about all their pregnancy advice. And the wife added, they have been hounding us for years, pushing the wisdom of having kids young. Now, being a certified dad, I said, of course, but all kids are born young. And... Um, <laughs> 
And I got a warning look, and I quickly added that I understood what she meant. Now, it all worked out. It all worked out. Those parents um, are now grandparents, and everything's fine. But for a season, for a season, they lost authority in their kids' lives because they wouldn't keep quiet about what they knew. When you're in authority, be quiet. Learn, and third thing, employ godly people. That's the headline on the right side of your notes. Look there. The right side of our notes, employ godly people. Read, read the next two verses. Still in Proverbs 25. Remove impurities from silver, and a vessel will be produced for a silversmith. Remove the wickedness from the king's presence, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Partners, advisors, and employees have massive impact on our souls. When you hire someone whose flaws are wicked, the ensuing product cannot be useful to you. Have you ever purchased jewelry that was so impure it left marks on your skin? You ever had that happen? It usually happens at resorts when the buyer is all relaxed and has left critical thinking back home. Um, think of that green stain on your finger or your wrist or your neck. That's exactly what happens when you use your power to employ the wrong people. They stain you. They erode your longevity. I know of what I speak. Churches, including this one, have a well-deserved reputation for being far too slow to get the wrong people off the bus. And as a result, the bus that is the organization breaks down and wastes a lot of time in costly repairs. God commands and empowers us to love all people, but he doesn't tell us to hire all people. We shouldn't be deceived by the pretty exterior. We must measure what a person is made of and hire those who will work righteously. Now, everybody, every organization makes bad hires. Everyone does. But if we get a reputation for being fooled, then we're going to have a very hard time even getting strong candidates to apply. Do you, do you see what Solomon's saying? That's why chapter 29 adds this couplet, uh, verse 12. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials will be wicked. A reputation for flippant use of authority, of regularly employing the wicked, will reduce our pool to only the wicked. Stop listening to lies. To, to help me with this, I, I asked a few business leaders that I respect. I wrote a few, uh, few folks, and I asked them to give me a current lie that they find that fools people who have hiring authority. Specifically, here's what I said. I said, tell me a lie that fools Christians who have hiring authority. And these are the four answers that I got. These are really good. Number one was, I can't hire a Christian because that's nepotism. You see, this is a Christian, and since we're brothers and sisters, he said, well, I can't hire a fellow Christian. That's a lie. There's no ethic about that at all, but it creeps into your thinking. Number two, diversity is always best, even if it adds highly unqualified people. No, no, that's not true. There are never any good candidates, so I might as well just settle. No, don't do that. Education level is the best predictor of success. True or false? False. Eschew those lies and employ people of righteousness, godly people instead. And do not oppress. Look up here, chapter 28, verse 3. A destitute leader who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no food. Sometimes organizations are in the red. They are. They're, they're destitute. A few times I have been honored to be called in and help turn around such companies. And I have observed firsthand Solomon's point. Here's what happens. In your panic to get back to the black, you cut off your own food supply because you start to overlook or abuse people. You become a driving rain that ruins all the grain. Oppression 
pushing is absurd. Everyone in the enterprise needs each other. The, the person in authority and the person under authority. And that is particularly obvious when things are tight, especially when money is tight. We see it all the time. You've got two stores of the same chain. They are in very similar markets. One store prospers. The other one struggles to make their numbers. When you, when you dig down and investigate, you find the prosperous store has management that treats everybody with fairness. In fact, there's a, there's a collegial comrade spirit in the store. The other one has a nasty boss, and turnover is always very high. I used to envy military officers like, like you, Dave. I used to envy you guys because you could just give an order, and it had to be followed, right? But a naval captain buddy of mine set me straight one time. He said, Wayne, you're so wrong. He said, even for important military commands to work, the leader must command, never demand. You like that? Command, don't demand. Even in the military, a leader cannot be oppressive or he will prove counterproductive. Anybody here ever work for an oppressive boss, one who was not commanding, a demanding leader? Raise your hand. You ever work for a boss like that? Yeah. Let's learn from that. When we have the power, let's choose not to be like that. All God's people said? Amen. Instead, each of us must be a pillar. That's the point of Proverbs 29.4. By justice, a king brings stability to a land, but a man who demands contributions demolishes it. The Hebrew here is just wonderful. The verb we translate brings stability is amad. Amad is a word that's used widely throughout the Bible and other languages um, for stand or take a stand. When it's used like this, it literally means to become a pillar. It's one of the great Hebrew idioms that spread to lots of other languages. You ever heard the phrase, a pillar of the community? That's amad. Probably the best translations of Proverbs 29.4 are builds up or builds to last. Do you want to stabilize your community? Do you want to build to last? Then use whatever powers you have fairly. Show no favoritism. Show no bias. Hold up all. And for goodness sake, don't accept any bribes. That is a sure way to crack the pillar of a culture. Listen again. This time, listen to the New American Standard Version. Um, the king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. This is not rocket science, folks. The strongest economies in the world are the least corrupt. Strongest economies in the world are the least corrupt. Nothing erodes the pillars of a society like taking bribes. Look up here. Transparency International, they do this every year. They do an excellent job assessing the corruption index for 180 different countries. Now, this is the most recent data. If you look at the map, you'll see the countries that are the most red. Those are the most corrupt countries on earth. The countries that are the most yellow are the least corrupt. Guess where there is the least poverty? The yellow countries. They go together. Look, um, here, here's Solomon's point spoken by uh, Huguette Labelle of the Transparency International. The continuing high levels of corruption and poverty, notice they go together, plaguing many of the world's societies amount to an ongoing humanitarian disaster and cannot be tolerated, close quote. Thank goodness none of us have any tent of corruption. We are perfect pillars, right? Yeah, so you won't mind asking yourself these painful application questions. Have I ever used influence for even a little personal gain? even just a little gain? Have I ignored laws, rules, or protocol in order to help a friend? Have I employed my power especially to block an enemy? Ever done that? Have I ever padded an expense account? Even five bucks. 
Have I accepted gifts from someone bidding for a contract? Have I taken office supplies for personal use? If you own the company, that's different. All right. Have I ever thought how to enrich myself at the expense of a bank or an insurance claim, insurance company, or government, etc.? You know, all those people who have so much money that I deserve instead. Folks, from painful personal experience, Solomon thought a lot about this. And he recognized that uh, when you're a cracked pillar, you cannot be a positive leader. Proverbs 27 has his last bit of advice. Pursue good feedback. Chapter 27, 4 through 6. Fury is cruel and anger a flood, but who can withstand jealousy? Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. This is all about being open to healthy feedback. There's less jealousy when you're open. When, when, when you're clear about your flaws and your efforts to, to expand, to grow past them, the jealousy around you is greatly reduced. Seek open reprimands from people you can trust. This is the brutal brilliance behind our pulpit team here at this church. Seven people sit on that team. They evaluate every single message I give. We meet 11 times a year, and I get to hear all about how my messages fall short of ideal communication. It hurts, and it is awesome. I get better and better every month because I learn from these friends of mine. They have my back. They don't gossip, but they are always very clear-eyed about where I need improvement. You need the same thing. Quit waiting. Quit waiting for your company to train you. Step out. Pursue it. Find someone or someones that you can trust and pursue good feedback. The alternative is gruesome, folks. The, the person in authority, if you don't pursue continual feedback, the person in authority becomes an idol. And then people do one of two things. Look at the text. They either try to tear it down or they fawn kisses upon it. Real growth is stagnated. Fran Legban of our pulpit team sent me a great example of this. The very day that Hitler became, the day after Hitler became Reich Chancellor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave a radio address. By the way, the Nazis tried to sabotage this radio address. Here's what one part of what Bonhoeffer said. If the leader tries to become the idol the led are looking for, something the led always hoped from their leader, then the image of the leader shifts to one of a misleader. And the leader is acting improperly toward the lead as well as toward himself. Close quote. Don't become a Hitler. Don't be an idolatrous misleader. Pursue good feedback that you need. Okay, let's cover the next section more quickly. When conflict looms, that's the, that's the second arena. Remember questions that I get. How does one handle conflict? Solomon says, first thing we should do, take every opportunity to disarm. Take opportunities to disarm. Your Bible's still open to chapter 25, right? Okay, slide down to verse 21, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. This verse is fairly familiar to a lot of Christians because the Apostle Paul repeats it in the New Testament. My sweetheart does this really well, and unlike me, she does so without any hint of condescension or sarcasm. My favorite example was when a, uh, a neighbor of ours stole some things from us, and the police caught her, caught this neighbor, and my wife immediately went and made a plate of brownies and took them down to the neighbor. 
heap of burning coals on their head. Let me give you a great way I think you can live this out in modern America. You ready? Write something nice about your political opponent and put it on Facebook. I'm totally serious. Okay, let's get somebody in mind. Think of that village idiot who refuses to see the light of your political wisdom. Okay, think of that person right now, all right? You know, that one who every time you post your brilliant political posts, because yours are always brilliant, that person who writes the snarky comments down below. Okay, you got, you got that person in mind. All right, now with that person in mind, think of some positive trait about him or her. Some positive trait. There are ones. Now go post that on his or her wall. If, if you're a Democrat then you, and that person's an elephant, then you could write, I'm impressed by your respect for law and order. It, it's important. If you're a Republican, that person's a donkey, then you could write, I'm grateful for your genuine care. That is important. If you're an independent, you could write about everybody. I'm grateful you guys never elect our third-party candidates, freeing us to always criticize without ever having to defend our actions. <laughs> Seriously, take opportunities to disarm. Of course, the best way to handle conflict is just reduce any likelihood of it at all. And that's why Proverbs reminds us to choose partners wisely. Look at the next two verses. The north wind produces rain and a backbiting tongue angry looks. Better to live on a corner of the, the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. Proverbs 27 15 adds, an endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are all alike. The one who controls her controls the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Of course, this applies to husbands as well and to business partners. Don't get in bed with a sharp-tongued grump. They can be as hard to handle as the wind, and they provoke continuing cycles of unhappiness. Now, any cycle can be broken. Never be disheartened. With God, all things are possible. But it is a lot easier to just choose well in the beginning and not get caught in the bad cycle. Back when I did family counseling, um, Jana told me that she could always tell when I had a session that included a mean-spirited spouse. She said that when I would come home from work those days, my hugs were especially fierce because I was so grateful for her. And I am. I am very glad that God led me to choose my partner wisely. Hezekiah Solomon's collection uh, gives us a third means for reducing conflict. Avoid pugnacious intervention. Avoid pugnacious intervention. Verse 17 of chapter 27. A person who's passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. My parents uh, raised King Charles Cavalier Spaniels. They are the sweetest, dumbest dogs in all of the world. My parents train them as therapy dogs. They take them to schools and nursing homes. These dogs are so sweet and so dumb that when a child or an old person will grab their ears and pull, the dog just turns and licks their hands. Very sweet. Solomon never met a King Charles Cavalier, okay? He was familiar with normal dogs. A stranger that grabs a normal dog's ears gets messed up. Same thing happens when we think that God needs us to jump in and settle every argument. We get messed up. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not suggesting we, we ignore opportunities to help. He's not suggesting that we quit fighting for right. We must not be afraid to do right, Dudley. But the text says this is just a quarrel. You see it? It's just a quarrel. Let them work it out themselves. Our hypersensitive justice meter is, is merely a self-centered lack of trust in God. That's all it is. Pretend to be the Holy Spirit and you're going to get bitten. Now, what about when you're the one under authority? 
What about when you're the one under authority? We talked about when I'm the boss. What about conflict? Now what about when I'm the one under authority? Please remember this. Every single human has areas of both leading and following. The wise person keeps in mind, no matter who you are, that you are always under some authority. Jesus exemplified this, right? When, when he willingly submitted himself to his equal, the person of the Father, that is his equal. And our church elder Paul Hahn uh, reminded me about the Roman centurion that impressed Jesus. Look at his story, Matthew chapter 8. When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. I'll come to him and heal him, he told him. Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed, and he said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. It's wonderful that this Roman, this man of great power, would trust Jesus so implicitly. That's awesome. But Paul Hahn likes to point out this centurion especially understands authority. Look at verse 9. We expect him to say in verse 9, I too am a man with authority. Right? That's what makes sense in the text. I also have authority. That's not what he says. He says, I am under authority. He's recognizing that Jesus is willingly under authority. And the centurion realizes that being under authority is what generates personal power. It's because he is faithful to those he serves that he can command others. Look, look, look again at verse 9. I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go when he goes, another come and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. How about us? Do we accept this truth? Do we understand this? Folks, if I'm not a good employee, I have limited power as a boss. If you don't serve, you can't lead. We must follow well in order to spearhead effectively. So let's absorb three quick lessons about being under authority. These are from Proverbs 25 to 29. These are practices that make perfect. The first is to honor masters with patience. Honor your master with patience. 27, 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever looks after his master will be honored. You have to earn fruit by working. It takes time. When Pete Briscoe and I were brand new pastors, um, we had occasional meetings with his brilliant father, Stuart. And one time, I'll never forget, Stuart looked at us very frustrated, and he said this. He said, you impatient kids drive me crazy. You want everything immediately that takes years to build. Close quote. Now, Stuart went on to tell us not to, not to misunderstand. There, there are real rewards for patient labor. That, that's why 2 Timothy 2.6 says the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Your hard work will be rewarded in heaven for sure and very likely on earth, but you must be patient and make sure you use some of that effort to care for your overseers. Seriously, the boss is not necessarily an enemy. Have compassion for their load. It blesses them and it will reward you. Whoever looks after his master is going to be honored just as a farmer receives his crops. Zach Brown and Chris Cornell, before Chris Cornell passed away, they wrote a song based on this. Um, they titled it, Heavy is the Head, and in it they examined the hard and I think thankless, often thankless work of, of handling power. Look what they wrote. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Black dog drinks from the water trying to cool his tongue. Like the king finds no peace, his work is never done. No soul knows his trouble, high upon his throne, loved by few and judged by many. 
He bears that weight alone. It's a lifelong expedition, second-guessing your decisions. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. But we think about that, and we're all surely asking the same question, and our favorite Groucho Marx imitation in our minds, we're saying, ah, but what if the authority over is a jack, ah? Great question. Look at 29.18, which we're going to read in the NASB. I think it's slightly clearer on this verse. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. Add to that Proverbs 28.2. When a land is in rebellion, it has many rulers. But with the discerning and knowledgeable person, it endures. Here's the conclusion, folks. Put those together, and you are to stay biblical, even under amoral or immoral leadership. Amoral, immoral leadership, you stay biblical. When the leader has no vision, that's amoral. Vision here means uh, vision in accord with Scripture. When that happens, people rebel. But we must not give in to a spirit of unrestraint. We must stay scripturally focused. We've got to keep God's words. We've got to position ourselves to be the rebuilders when everything falls apart, because it will. A fire sale reaction to bad leadership never accomplishes what's desired. It always leaves a mess, and somebody has to rebuild afterwards. This is, why, this is why your forefathers, those American patriots, were so adamant that theirs was a correction of corruption. They were adamant that theirs was a legal revolution. They never talked about it as a rebellion. It was not a rebellion. It was a revolution. It's why when you read Chinese histories, they are, they are so full of fear and danger about the periods where there's no strong emperor. There are, there are times to leave companies. There are times to change careers. There are times to protest unjust laws. But lawless rebellion does not ever need to be a part of that. We can change. We can lead. We can even leave biblically, speaking the truth in love. Listen, if you are ever tempted to blast away against what you perceive as poor authority, please remember this. Always remember this. Past bridges have a way of reappearing in one's future path. When they are burned, it seriously impacts your later progress. Okay? So when you're under authority, honor masters with patience. Stay biblical no matter the leader and serve one master. Serve one master. Here's our last text. I'd like you to read with me Proverbs 29, 25, and 26. You take the underlined text, please. The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Many seek a ruler's favor, but a man receives justice from the Lord. Kissing up to the boss is not only disgusting, it's unnecessary. That person's not going to give you justice. That government's not going to solve your problem. Now, people in governments are fine. They have their place this side of heaven. But only Yahweh generates real protection. Only Yahweh actualizes true justice. What is this? Does anybody know what this is? What is it? It's a snare. It's a trap. It's trapped a rabbit. Not one of the ones eating my plants, unfortunately. But... Um, it's a very nasty way for an animal to get caught, and God uses this image on purpose. He uses this graphic, painful image in the proverb on purpose, because when we are in awe of any human, we're just like a rabbit in a snare. We have lost sight of who we really serve. Honor your leaders. Yes, labor well with hard work when you're the person under authority, but don't ever forget who we really serve. Whom do we really serve, everybody? Who is it? Yahweh alone, God alone, that's who we serve. All God's people said, pray with me about that. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here that we will serve you. 
that we will serve you, whether we are in conflict, whether we have authority, whether we're under authority, that we will do everything heartily as for you, not just for people. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful that you love us, and you give us wisdom to see us through these, these thorny, wonderful, difficult aspects of life. You are so kind to us, and we are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.